0: You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, it was lovely to um, dedicate Sebastian Botha before, and, and I was uh, looking up the meaning of his name, and, and it seems to be both from Greek and, and Latin, revered one, I guess speaking of a noble character, which is, which is lovely. But of course, if you really want the low down on a, on a name or definition of anything, you need to go to the Urban Dictionary. And the Urban Dictionary says this of Sebastian, the kindest and coolest person you will ever know. How's that? Known to be loved by all, known for strength and, and courage. We want to, to look at names a little bit. We love naming things, don't we? Does your car have a name? Whose car has a, has a name? Yeah, we've got, we got a few, it, it, it kind of helps. What are, what are some of the names of your cars, not the model? Daphne. Daphne. Okay. I'm picturing a Volkswagen. No. Almost. Okay. What, what is it, just by the Toyota way? Toyota a Toyota Ascent. A Toyota Ascent. That would be a Daphne. Yep. 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 Any others? Any? Lucy. Susie. 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 Okay. So Lucy's still up for grabs if you need to name your car. Any masculine names? Go- but what was a beast? Beast, beast. Yes, this is your car. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. And we've got a jack over here somewhere, do we? Yeah, yeah, jack. Wow, oh, awesome. We used to have a jack. It was the the Holden Jackaroo. Jack's no longer with us. Um, but we love naming things, cars, uh, ships, big ships. Do you know some interesting names for ships? So you've got this this aircraft carrier in the US. Okay, its deck is four and a half hectares. It has 85 planes on it. Um, its, its capability in terms of power and weaponry is classified. We're talking, this is the one that you should call Beast, right? The name? The Kitty Hawk. The Kitty Hawk. What were they? We have, we're no better in Australia. We have sitting up in Darling Harbour there in Sydney, who knows it? Who's ever visited the, the retired ship there? The HMAS Vampire, Vampire. Have you heard that one before? Um, and, uh, and so we we have we have strange names. What's in a name? We had a roundtable discussion in our house household some uh, some weeks back to just help Matt and Jacinta out with um, with naming naming young Audrey. And the idea was, as we went round the table, is to persuade Matt and Jack why they should choose our name for their, for their baby. And, uh, and we went around, and there were some um, very compelling arguments, I must say, for um, uh, why it should be Stuart. Uh, but um, anyway, Audrey it is. But baby names are very, very precious, aren't they, too? Parents pray about the names of their children often and, and try to... Try to think up a name that doesn't just sound nice, but, but something about the character or something about that person is, has stuck with them. Maybe you knew someone who used to have that particular name, and you've thought to yourself many times, oh, I'd love to. I'd love to use that name for one of my children, because that particular person, maybe a mom or dad a relative or a friend, was just very, very special to you, and, uh, and it's taken the name has taken on a character. So what's in a name? Well. Here is God, who throughout all of the Old Testament is known simply as Yahweh, because, well, his real name would be just too too precious to, to speak out by a mere mortal. And so God is in the heavenlies, and he knows that he is about to send his one and only son, the son of God, God himself. He's about to send his only son to earth. And I imagine there must have been a discussion in the heavenlies. Yeah, what will we... What would, they, what would they call you? I mean, Yahweh Jr. just he doesn't, you know, kind of have a ring to it. It sort of seems to take that, that little note of reverence away. What, what are they going to call the Son of God? And it's not haphazard. It's not left up to Joseph and Mary to decide. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me, would you, to Matthew chapter 1. Now, you know the name, or at least one of the names, that he was to be called but here was the process. The name was going to be so important that it would have to be conveyed by an angel. And it was very, very strict instructions as to, to what the name should be. Let's read from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 19 um, through to, just for the moment, 21. And we'll, we'll proceed a little bit later. So this is... Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So you might have a little note in your Bible, somewhere around there, saying that Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, the Lord saves. The well, Lord saves from what? Well well, this makes it clear. He will save people from their sins. So we have this apparently this problem of sin. But but how bad is it? How bad is this sin problem? It's one of those confusing aspects for somebody who has not been trained in the doctrines of Christianity. It's one of these confusing aspects of our faith that I guess more and more gets watered down a little bit. How bad is the problem? And, and sometimes it's because it well, depends on your scale, doesn't it? Humanism, for instance, is content with sort of something of a bell curve. Um, in other words, if, if your righteousness um, is gauged relative to other people's righteousness, you'll probably be okay. And, and and that would work for the most people, and so humanists would would uh, adopt that sort of an outlook. Um, it's a little bit like that that old joke of. Uh Two people in a, let's, let's say for the sake of the South Africans here, Kruger National Park. And, and there they are camping and, uh, and, and just sort of, you know, seeing the, the amazing um, beasts there, the big five. And, and, uh, and suddenly one, one night they notice that there is a, a lion prowling around the tent, which reminds them a little bit of a Bible verse, but they're not actually thinking about that at that moment. They're thinking about the lion prowling around the tent and it starts to, to claw at the, the, the tent and... And you sort of think, oh, man, I, I should have studied up on this more. Do, do, you know, do lions know how to use zips? I mean, this could be terrible for us. And, and your buddy says, what do you mean? It doesn't need to operate the zip. It, it can tear through this vinyl. These are vicious, vicious creatures. And you think all is lost. No, this is terrible. Suddenly, your, your, your buddy says, it's all right. There's another door on the other side of the tent. We can get out there. Fantastic. And and suddenly he stops and and, and pulls on a, a pair of sneakers. And you're kind of thinking, what are you doing? We just we should just run for it. We should find the biggest tree, or I don't know, we should just run. And and, and, and hope it's a crippled lion or something. And and there he is pulling on your sneakers. What are you doing pulling on your sneakers? You you're not gonna be able to outrun this thing. He said, I I don't have to outrun the lion. I simply have to outrun you. And <laughs> In the area of sin, isn't, isn't that actually how we think most of the time? We've got our little bell curve there. We've got our little system of righteousness. We we kind of we kind of think, I don't have to be the best. I've just got to be better than the guys who are on the on the 50%, you know, downside of this thing. I, I'm just gonna be north of 50 and I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm in. And sometimes with our righteousness, that's that's how we like to kind of kind of gauge it. As long as I'm not as bad a sinner as the worst sinner. And, and we're all good. Well, let's face it, most of us do think that way from time to time, but the Bible paints a very different picture. Sin apparently is not the sum total of, of points we've accumulated relative to others or, or points of righteousness. No, we are or are not in relationship with God, our Creator. The rule of all things. That's it. It's a position. It's a state of, of being. Are we or are we not in relationship with God? If we are not, we are in a state of sin, and that is not a place that we want to be. In other words, here is is God, the the king of all things, and if we're in relationship with him, then, then his reign, his rule, and his dominion extends to us. But if we are outside of relationship with him, his reign, his sovereignty, his rule and dominion, it does not. It does not cover us. His rule is never imposed, and 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 the question is with regards to are we in a state of sin or not is have we declared him to be king and placed ourselves under his rule see there's no sitting on the fence here either he's our king or he's not it really is that simple now in terms of understanding kingship and so forth there's a story in 2 samuel chapter 15 well, the most famous king of Israel, of course, is King David. He had a wayward son called Absalom. And, and Absalom, um, he was an angry young man. And he was, well, you could say he was, he was rightfully angry. He was angry that his, there seemed to be no justice for his sister who had been raped. Now, all of us have good reasons, don't we? Good, just reasons for being angry in this life. But still... Our anger doesn't justify whether or not we are in relationship with God. Well, Absalom was angry, decided on this issue of justice. He's not going to wait for ultimate justice. He'll take it into his own hands. And so he kills Amnon, one of the, the, the perpetrators of the, of the rape. And, and there is this strange enmity between him and King David, his father, from that point on. Eventually, Absalom decides, I'm going for the throne. I'm going for the throne. And he works hard over a long period of time to woo all of Israel over to him. And finally, through a little bit of deceit and trickery, he is able to actually take the throne of his dad. His dad is exiled. The advisors of David come to him and say, you've got to to get out of here. This is not good. Absalom has taken your throne. And so David... With some of his wives, some of his officials, and so forth, he flees. He, he does. He, he realizes the wisest thing for the moment is just to, to get out of the picture. And so Absalom takes the throne, and, and there's the, the story of him surrounding himself with advisors. And, and he says, you know, how do, I, how do I show that I am now king? And so he's told it's not enough just to sit on the throne you have to sleep with your father's concubines. Go up onto the rooftop. Make yourself a make a tent and and make it public. Disgrace your dad. And so he does that. Bit of a shocking story, actually. It's not enough for Absalom to take the throne. He also takes his father's bed. It's not enough for Absalom to to just woo some of the officials over to himself. He he takes. He takes David's wives as well. It's not enough for him to just take the honor that once belonged to his father, the king. He actually heaped dishonor on him. He was out of relationship with his father. He was, for illustrative purposes, he was a picture of somebody in a state of sin. He had taken over the throne. There he was, not just on the throne but in his father's bed on the rooftop of the palace in front of all of the people, disgracing his father. Where does that kind of thinking come from? Well, we see the root of all sin goes back to Genesis 3, 5, where there was a promise, if you do this, you will be like God. The root of all sin is idolatry. We all want to be like God. Absalom wanted to be the king. He wanted the throne. He wanted to displace David, his father. And we think, oh well that's that's an old testament story in Genesis is old times, isn't it? That was Adam. Dear, dear, dear me. That that bad Adam, he really shouldn't have done that. Keep him away from apples or whatever other fruit it was. But Romans three twelve tells us that when Adam sinned, death death spread to everyone. We all sinned. We're all in that same state. Adam's break of relationship with God and separation from God and being in that state of sin, of rebellion, of, of overthrowing him, displacing him, seating himself on the throne, we're all there. Guess what? That, that picture of Absalom up on the roof, I'm up on the roof. You're up on the roof. All of humanity is up on the roof. And you might say, I don't know how we got, how did we get into this predicament? You know what? In terms of pointing fingers, it comes back to us. All of us are responsible. We're all up on that roof. We've all displaced God the King. And yes, it is that shameful. And yes, it is that bad. And yes, that's what the state of sin is like. Sin is like that. Sin is a place. It's a place in which we displace God. And we're all there. You know what's worse? The King's coming back. And you know what that means. It meant the demise of Absalom. David had been putting off punishment for as long as he could. But you know what? This could not go unpunished. God is coming back and and he is not happy that his position has been displaced in our lives and in the world. We need a savior. That's the problem of sin, solution, God's solution is he provides a savior. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. His name, Jesus, is important. He will save us from our sin. It's, it's, it's like the oldest brother appears on the scene, looks up and he, he says, what have you done? What are you doing on the roof? What are you doing in your father's house? What are you doing on his throne? What have you done? You know what this means, don't you? And it's like all of humanity looks down. Some are still partying on, but some realize the problem and kind of think, what have we done? What have we done? Help us. Who can help us? And Jesus, the older brother, says, I will intervene on your behalf. Leave it to me. And as he wanders off to to be our ambassador, the one who will make peace with our Father, the one who will make peace with God. He goes to a certain cross and a certain death to pay for our sin. We needed saving. We needed a savior. But who? Jesus. We shall call him Jesus, for he will save you from your sin. The cradle was always to be cast in the shadow of the cross. It was always to be that way. And Jesus is your mediator. He is the one who gives his life to atone for our sin so that we can have peace with God. And then the angel, uh, oh, sorry, Matthew goes on to explain this a little bit more. Verse 22 All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Um, This this particular quote is an allusion from Isaiah chapter 7, where there had been a previous prophecy, in a previous moment in which um, a child born to a virgin was to be assigned to Israel, and now once more in 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 a way which is totally fulfilled. And this answers the other dilemma or question that comes regarding sin, and that is the whole one of alienation. For the one thing that holiness cannot host is unholiness. And so it was inevitable in the Garden of Eden that we would have to be banished. Once sin was the, the state of all humanity, we would have to be banished. We would, we would have to leave the presence of God. The Garden of Eden was symbolic of that and many other things. But it was symbolic of and the place where the presence of God was experienced. Or well, we were banished from that garden, and that 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 state of alienation has been, I guess, the common experience of all of us for all time. But Jesus answers that question too. He is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us, meaning that that we are no longer aliens to God. We are actually brought back into relationship with Him. Um, I don't know if you have ever ever been banished. The one lasting memory I have for this was, was utterly devastating. It was one summer. We lived in a court, and, um, and right at the bottom of the court, um, the family, where, where I would often play, I was really, really good friends with their son, the family got the very first above-ground swimming pool in the entire court. So this summer was just going to be sensational. It was going to be so good. And the whole court was excited about this family getting the swimming pool. And we couldn't wait. And, and we saw it. It was at least this deep. And it was at least that wide. And, and 20 of us, we, we knew we were going to have such fun in that all summer round. Except that I fell out of favor with the son of the family who owned the swimming pool. And he banned me as a 10-year-old, I couldn't problem solve this. I didn't quite know what to do. I how, do you, how do I be reconciled to my neighbor? Like, uh, wow, this is devastating. This means I don't get to go in the pool. And sure enough, you know, this one Saturday afternoon, it was stinking hot. And everybody went down to the swimming pool, and including my brother and my sister and all of my friends, the entire sum total of children in our court were in that swimming pool. And I was standing out at the bottom of the court in the driveway just thinking, this is terrible. Everyone I know, everyone who love, everyone who's dear to me is in that swimming pool and I'm out here alone. I've been banished and I, and I don't know what to do. That's alienation for you. Only, of course, when it comes to God, it's, it's a much more severe kind of alienation. But Jesus says, no more banishment you don't have to, to wait outside the property. You can come in. He makes a pathway in, and he says, come, let's have fellowship. Come, you're not an alien. You're not a stranger. You're not a follow- foreigner. Come, your family, your family. Come in, come in. Jesus makes a way to do this. He provides proximity for us. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he comes to us, and he gives us relationship once more. The salvation Jesus offers purifies us from all sin and ushers us back into the presence of God in a most wonderful way. Now, God with us means, means at least two things. It means that God is on his throne, so he's back in place, he's back on his throne, God is on his throne, and his reign, his kingdom rule, now extends to us, to our lives Jesus was once once teaching on the kingdom of God in Luke chapter 17, 21. And he says, you know, you're looking here for the kingdom of God or there. You know, here it is, there it is. And he says, do you not understand? The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is wherever the king reigns. If he rules over your life, guess what? You are in the kingdom of God. You come under his kingship, under his reign, his rule, his dominion. You're in your family. You're a son of the king, a daughter of the king. you you're a part of the kingdom of God. Um what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be on his throne and and as it were the very throne or command center of our life? I mentioned before a, a ship up in, in Sydney called the HMAS Vampire. Still don't know what's with that name. But anyway, you can go on there, you can do a tour. And I did this with a with an old buddy of mine, and this was this was you could you could Tour it with anyone, but but this was this was one of my best friends, and we were we were going on the ship, and oh, we th- there was there was not a room or a cupboard that we left open. We scoured the whole thing, and and we we loved it. We spent the afternoon in there, and I remember one time coming coming into the command center, and and it wasn't what I thought. I thought that it would the command center would have like windows looking out, but it wasn't. It was an enclosed room just filled with radars and screens, and then was the most comfortable chair right in the middle. I mean, this is the ultimate recliner. Well, I don't, you don't know if it reclined or not. You weren't allowed to sit in it for very long. We sat, anyway, this was a really, really comfortable chair. And this was where whoever had the comm, whoever had the command of the ship, they would sit there. And from here, they were able to operate everything. They didn't need to see out there. They didn't need eyes on the ocean. They knew there was water out there. All they needed was the radar screens to show them what was, what was happening around them. And from there, they were able to command the entire ship. It's like that's the, that, that's the command center. We all have one in our lives. We all have a command center. We all have a, have, a, have a comfy seat, a throne. And when we come under the rulership, the kingship of God, Jesus himself comes and he sits in the command center of your life. God with us means he's with you. He's in the command center. He's in control. He is right there. So no matter what happens on your life radar, you know, this comes up. A relationship issue. Do you know what? Jesus is on the throne. Financial trouble. Do you know what? Jesus is on the throne. It could be, you know, illness. Jesus is on the throne. Loved ones, Jesus is on the throne. Worry, Jesus is on the throne. Fear, Jesus is on the throne. It could be anything. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever is throwing up on those little radars that come to us day after day after day, guess what? He's got you covered if he's on the throne. His his reign means that he rules over your life if you will just let him in the command center. Now, one of our problems is having invited him in we keep kind of sort of squeezing in next to him, don't we? We've got to kind of just gag him every now and again. It's all right, Jesus, I've got this one. Fear, I've seen it before. I know how to handle it. Fear, no! We're just going to let Jesus be king. Get off. Get out of the sea. Let him have the command post. He's so good at this stuff. Don't push in. That's called lordship. So... Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, means that. His, his rule and his dominion extends to your life. Let him have the seat. Give Jesus the calm. He'll look after you. And these are, means something else as well. The fact that Jesus is sitting on his throne and his reign extends to us, is wonderful, but it also means an incredible access that you have to God. It also means this, he's on his throne, not just the throne of your life, he's on his throne, his big throne, at the right hand of the Father, and and he knows he has intimacy with the Father, and he ushers you right into the very presence of God. God is on his throne, and you're on his knee. That's the other beautiful blessing of restored intimacy with God. He's on his throne and you're on his knee. Hebrews 4.16 is an amazing verse talking about just how Jesus did this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. That's, that's our Jesus. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What does that look like for you, approaching the throne of God with confidence? Do you like to run? Well, you can run to God. Do you like to skip? You can skip to God. Do you want to show him how clever you are at hopping? Hop to God. Do it with confidence. However you come to God, come with the confidence that Jesus has laid the path for you. It's clear. You'll know it. It's filled with all of the things that delight your heart and filled with all of the things that that you need. You will recognize this path, and it goes right to the very heart of God. I also mentioned the USS Kitty Hawk. Amazing ship, four and a half hectares of deck. It's a third of a kilometer long. The crew was 5,600 people. That's bigger than most towns in Australia. It had 85 aircraft on it, and as I say, the, the actual firepower was was classified. It's a super carrier. When it was launched, it was launched from a, a shipbuilding site on the Delaware River in New Jersey. But instead of, you've seen those launches where they you know break a break a bottle you know, over the bow of the ship and then it slides down a ramp. They were worried that it would, because it was so big, slide down the ramp. Leave New Jersey and actually go over the river to and hit the shore of Philadelphia. So so they actually just had to fill the fill the dry dock and then float it out in an unceremonious way. This is a massive ship. And you would think, how, how would you get onto one of those things? Like, how would you attack that? How would you get I walked on? I just walked on it. It was so easy. Why? I knew someone. And that's what it's like with God. How do you approach god who who you know in terms of approachability is is take the biggest number you can think of multiply that by supercarriers, and that's how unapproachable god is because holiness cannot host unholiness that's how unapproachable god is but you know someone don't you and that someone can make a way where you can't and that's what jesus does in fact so so clear and so beautiful and bountiful is the way that he provides you to approach the throne of God. You can do it with confidence. You can skip, you can hop, you can jump, you can leap, you can fly if we actually get angel's rings. I don't know if that's a myth or not. It just doesn't say in the Bible, but some of us are hoping we do. But you approach the throne of God, however you dare, with confidence, the confidence that Jesus Christ is going ahead. It's kind of like he's saying, hey, welcome, welcome. Um, Brother, sister, dude, yo. Know, however Jesus is going to, welcome, welcome. And then he just makes the way. Come and see dad. Come and see dad. Come and see dad. At the way, will you please? This guy's really important. Come and see dad. Do it with the confidence that Jesus Christ himself is paving the way for you. He ushers you right into the presence of his father. And it's not enough for you to just bow before him like, oh, dear. You know, it's not enough. He says, oh, get up, will you? Come on, hop up on his knee here. There's two of them. I'll jump up too. That's confidence. Hebrews, which unpacks for us in an incredible way the the priestly requirements and the holiness code in such a way as you could, could, you know, you think this is impossible. You could never do that. Stuart, you're embellishing this. That's not the way to approach God. He's to be revered. and, And yes, he is. And yet that doesn't diminish his father's heart one iota. He is who he is. He is to be revered by all. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is over all things. It is impossible to look at his face and not die. And yet Jesus ushers us right into his presence and he says, do this confidently. And so Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, the presence and proximity and imminence of God. God with us means both his reign extends to us. He lives within us. He's got the calm. But also... We can press in close to the Father heart of God effortlessly because Jesus ushers us right there. The name Jesus was fulfilled at Calvary. He saves us. He cleans us up. The name Emmanuel was fulfilled at Pentecost. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He fills us up. He cleans us up. He fills us up. That's some Jesus, isn't it? That is some Jesus. That's the Jesus that we're remembering this Christmas. That's the Jesus that <laughs> defied all logic and came to humanity, born as a baby in a cradle with the shadow of the cross in the background. That's the Jesus we're celebrating this Christmas. That's what he's done for you. He's saved you. And he's with you. And he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. He's just not like that. That is one amazing Jesus. And then the last part of this verse, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Well, what does God command of you this Christmas? I love that response. Joseph was such a noble man, wasn't he? Don't you, don't you kind of feel like he is he's the kind of guy I'd like to have as a friend? yeah. Guy, he did what he was commanded to do. He leaves us an example there, you know. Jesus commanded all disciples, Come, follow me the whole way, all the way, deep, beautiful, rich, intimacy. Come, come. That's what he commands. So let's recommit ourselves to following this Jesus, especially this Christmas, but throughout 2016. Let him be the center of everything, let him be the center of it all. We're going to close with a song. I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And as we sing this song, actually, the kids are going to come out again, and they're going to bring little gifts. And you could, I don't know, maybe you have in your mind the sort of gift that you would like to bring God this Christmas. But they're going to bring um, some, some gold, some myrrh, And some frankincense, or symbols of, because, yeah, we're just, yeah, budget restraints. Anyway, they're going to bring those three gifts. And they're also going to bring another two gifts. They're going to bring a gift that humanity would impose upon Jesus in the latter part of his life. And yet it was a gift that he willingly received. It was a crown of thorns. And they're going to bring another little gift as well. They're going to bring a little little package of bandages for Jesus as well. As a reminder, gifts that we could give befitting a king who has given his all for us. So, thanks, guys. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.